welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, today we're going to be talking about something that um, (laughs) it almost seems ridiculous that we have to talk about it. I mean, it seems like it should have been uh, a no-brainer or something that, that you don't need an executive order to make sure happens. But no, you know, the way the world is so topsy-turvy these days with the collusion, delusion, and all of that, Um, we are talking today about the free speech on college campuses. And believe it or not, or maybe you've heard about this already, believe it or not, um, President Trump did a, wrote out, signed an executive order to try to make sure that there would be free speech on college campuses or else um, they would not get money uh, for research, federal money for research. I mean, it seems like um, it, it just, it's just shocking to me that um, this would have to, that it would come down to this. I mean, of course, I'm glad he did that. I don't know how much effect it's going to have. Well, I mean, I, I guess they have to catch them first, but my guest is going to tell you all about that hear what he has to say about how enforceable it is and what ex- experience is like uh, at his college campus. My guest is Dr. Michael Bussler. He is a public policy analyst. He's an economics expert. He's a professor of finance and uh, at Stockton University in New Jersey. And he's also a featured columnist in Newsmax and LifeZet and Town Hall. So welcome to the show, Dr. Bussler. Well, thank you, Carol. It's my pleasure to be here. Um, what, first of all, what co- is, is uh, Stockton, is that a, that's a state school? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, it was, um, it's in New, New Jersey, just outside of uh, Atlantic City. Uh, it was originally started as a liberal arts college, and it's now a um, uh, comprehensive university. Uh, it still maintains a lot of its uh, liberal arts roots, so some of the problems that are uh, um, prevalent in colleges and universities around the country um, are very similar to the problems that I see that I see here. But yeah, we're a state school. Okay. Um, the reason I, I also wanted to ask you that because uh, there's in this in the executive order um, yeah. state. Schools absolutely have to uh, adhere to to uh, the First Amendment, and private schools have a little more leeway. But why don't you why don't you tell us? Well, first, why don't we why don't I back up yeah, a little yeah. bit? Because I guess yeah. the first question would be why is why are you so passionate about this? I mean, obviously, you know, you're an economics professor, and you talk about lots of different things or could, um, but this is obviously a topic that is near and dear to your heart. So, and I would presume yeah. it's because of things you're seeing on your own campus. And what I'm seeing at uh, other, other campuses uh, also. Um, a couple uh-huh. of things. One, um, the whole free speech movement 
uh, really started uh, in California back in the mid-60s at, at Cal Berkeley, where some students stood up and said, this is, we have a right to free speech. Cal Berkeley uh, agreed with them, uh, and they really encouraged uh, free speech. Today, uh, virtually every college and university uh, values diversity on campus, and that's diversity in their student body uh, in terms of uh, gender and race and uh, other demographics. Um, uh, they value that. What they don't value on campus is political diversity. Um, and hmm. in fact, on many campuses, and I find it very ironic that uh, Cal Berkeley, uh, where the free speech movement started, um, has now pretty much taken a position uh, that they don't allow the uh, conservative view to be expressed on their campus. You may recall uh, a couple of weeks ago, a young student was trying to re- recruit people for a conservative movement, and he got he was punched in the face uh, for doing that. Um, there are a number of uh, conservative speakers who have tried to speak at Cal Berkeley. Some um, declined, left because uh, of safety issues. Others that uh, gave their talk uh, faced uh, rioting outside of the um, event. Uh, so Cal Berkeley itself does not really um, encourage free speech. So what President Trump said, and we'll talk in a minute whether I think it's going to work or not, but so what he, he said is, look, uh, colleges and universities are supposed to be the, the bastion of free speech. It's where uh, ideas are supposed to be uh, exchanged. And in fact, as educators, um, our job is to impart knowledge onto students in a specific area. That's true. But what happens during in your college years um, is you essentially go from being a child to an, an adult. And as an adult, you're required uh, to make a whole lot of decisions that obviously will impact your, your life. Well, what you learn in college, aside from specific subject matter, what you learn is basic critical thinking skills. And yes. once you have those skills, you can make better decisions and have a better quality of life. Well, in order to make good decisions, you have to gather as much information as possible. If you're only taking a look at information that's presented on only one side of an argument, you'll never have enough information to make a good decision. So on campuses in particular, you should allow, in fact, this is a democracy. I mean, technically a constitutional republic, but we live in a democracy. And in order for democracy to thrive and grow, you need healthy debate. So by limiting the amount of free speech on campus, you're limiting that healthy debate. You're not giving students, and I think professors are doing a huge disservice to the students, by not giving them both sides of an argument and not encouraging critical thinking skills. So President Trump said, we, we can't have this. Uh, so I'm going to do what I can to put some pressure on uh, institutions of higher learning to encourage free speech. Now, the only way he can do this is the power of the pocketbook. And all schools, private or public, in some way rely on government funding uh, for them to uh, stay solvent. So the president said, listen, if there are instances where you're discouraging free speech, we're going to withhold funding 
from you. Uh, since colleges rely on that, uh, he felt that that would be a way to enforce uh, his desire to have free speech. Now, the problem may be uh, somebody may take this to court and it may not uh, hold up in court. You may recall President Trump didn't want cities to be sanctuary cities, so he said he was going to withhold funding if they did that, and the court ruled that he was not allowed to do that. So I'm not sure how yes, effective but isn't this that, will be. But, but, yeah. but that was one, I mean, I mean, isn't that still going to eventually go up to the Supreme Court about the um, yeah. Um, yes. sanctuary city? I mean, that's, that, yes, that I agree. isn't over yet. <clears throat> Um, no. Let me just comment on some of the things that you said so far. Yeah. Uh, first of yeah. all, I saw a video online. Um, I, I hope a lot of people saw that. It was really chilling. Uh, the video that you talked about on at Cal State Berkeley of a student being yeah. punched in the face. I mean, it's just, you know, Horrible. as you were saying, of course colleges are supposed to be, I mean, in a way, by the definition, I mean, when I went to college, actually, I went to uh, the State University of New York at Stony Brook, and it was yeah. called Berkeley of the East, and um, there was all kinds of free speech, and um, I, I, so I, 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 mean, I guess that's part of why I can't imagine it any other way, but the, the thing is, you know, that, as you were saying, yes, of course, that that's part of the college experience. It's not just about learning math or, you know, French literature or whatever you're studying. Um, it, it is, you know, whatever the subject is, it's about learning critical thinking for that subject and in general in terms of world exactly. events. So if you take away the debate and the ability to have critical thinking uh, or the, the through debate, the teaching of having critical thinking, then you're taking away the main purpose of college. Exactly. <clears throat> exactly. And in fact, as, uh, as a professor, I believe I have a duty uh, to ha not only impart knowledge in a specific area, as we said, but also to cultivate those critical thinking skills. Um, I, I teach a course, uh, not every year, um, in uh, ethics. And I teach it from a business standpoint, um, and again, I teach at a school where um, 90% of the or more of the faculty and students uh, tend to take a very progressive view on, on things and discourage the conservative view. Well, in the ethics class, I, I tell them, look, um, here's the topics we're going to cover, and uh, we'll go over, we'll have one article on the pro view and one article on the con view, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. But um, there's all of these issues, there's not necessarily a right or wrong. Uh, so in order for you to make an a, uh, educated decision and use those critical thinking skills, you really need both sides of the argument presented to you. What I find is on most of the topics that um, the students tend to favor that very progressive view. The last time I taught the course was in the spring of 2016. And at that time, it was a presidential election. 90% mm -hmm. of the students uh, supported Bernie Sanders. Well, <laughs> I said, let's take a look at, at, at some issues here. So uh, one thing I brought up was, uh, how do you feel about the minimum wage? And nearly all of them said, well, uh, we think the minimum wage should be raised to $15 uh, an hour, and they gave all the reasons for that. People can't live on less than that. It's unfair that somebody's in poverty when they're working. All good social r reasons. And then I said, well, how about the other side of the argument? 
And they really couldn't answer anything about that. So I said to them, well, there is another side. You know, raising the minimum wage um, will end up uh, significantly reducing the number of jobs available uh, to unskilled workers. Uh, For instance, um, you go into a McDonald's and you place your order by telling somebody, the order taker, and they take, take the order. Well, if at a $15 minimum wage, that'll be too expensive for the McDonald's to have those people's people, and instead they'll put in touch screens, uh, and some places mm. already have that. So you'll replace labor with capital, and you'll end up uh, reducing the number of, of jobs. And I gave him a little bit of uh, you know, economic theory about how that works. Well, by the end of the class, I had some students sitting back there scratching their head saying, well, you mm. know, maybe we should have looked at the other side of this. That's the way mm. education is supposed to be. So yeah. people should, have, should feel free to say what they want to say. And today on campuses, students are afraid to, to, to give a view that's not a very progressive view. I'll tell you, 95% of the faculty here is very progressive. And I uh, hold back on my views too, because I know they're not going to be very well received, and sometimes they're even a little bit violently received, uh, and it just shouldn't, shouldn't be that way. We need free, free speech on campuses. So, uh, well, that's a, that was a good example, and, and in fact, it kind of goes along with this whole idea where, um, you know, who would have thought we would be having a conversation about, you know, why you need free speech on college campuses no less an executive order. And it kind of goes along with the same thing of, like, who would have thought in the United States that people <laughs> would be voting for someone who wants socialism? Exactly. That, that, one, that one really scares me. Um, if, um, and I think part of the reason is, uh, especially with younger people, they, they don't fully understand uh, what, what they're asking for. You, you know, um, so, Somebody asked me, why do you think socialism is so appealing to the young people today? And yeah. I think there's a relatively simple, simple answer. Um, the young people today and millennials on down have never experienced economic prosperity. The last time the economy grew at a 3% annual rate was 2005. The last time we grew at a 4, uh, 4% annual rate was the year 2000. Now, once the economy grows over 4%, there's a lot of prosperity for everybody to feel. This generation, uh, millennials on down, haven't felt that because the economy has been so stagnant for so long. Well, when that happens, that stagnation, I have my students graduating for the last decade, graduating, and they're lucky to find one good job offer. Many of them have had to take jobs for which they don't need their college degree. They're overqualified, so they uh, end up taking jobs like that, and we have this what we call underemployment uh, problem. Well, they feel very bitter that they just went through four years of college and incurred a lot of student debt, and here they can't get a job uh, reflecting the skills that they have. Worse yet, because they took those jobs where you don't need a college degree, people without college degrees had no opportunity Mm. at all. They dropped out mm. of the workforce, probably five to six million discouraged workers. They're pretty upset with the, with the system. So because of the stagnant economy, really for the last two decades, 
people are starting to say, well, maybe capitalism doesn't work for me. Try something where yeah. I don't have as much as somebody else. So let me try socialism and I'll just get it given to me. So I think that's the basis of that. Mm. And I'm hoping it, it, it fades. Um, President Trump has got the economy growing again. And he set growth as his top economic priority. Uh, in 2018, the economy just about hit a 3% annual growth rate. Um, and I think if he can get the economy to grow more than that, the consensus view is that's not going to happen this year. I kind of think it, it will grow a little better than it did last year. But if President Trump can continue to get the economy to grow, underemployed people will start moving into jobs more suited to their uh, qualifications and they'll be earning better income. And that's already starting to, to happen. And uh, really since July, uh, this past July, we've had hundreds of thousands of discouraged workers coming back into the into the workforce where they had no opportunity mm-hmm. before. Now they're seeing some. In fact, today, there are more job openings than there are unemployed people. Uh, now, there's a structural imbalance there, but still, there are more openings than there are unemployed people. And um, uh-huh. that means if anybody really wants to get a job and work today, you should be able to find something. That's really the way to uh-huh. turn this uh, view of socialism around. Hmm. Wow. Okay. Well, we have to. <laughs> we need to turn it around quickly because this is. All right. Well, I don't know if you heard, but there's music. We have to take a break. Um, My guest is Dr. Michael Bussler. He is a public policy analyst and economics expert and a professor of finance at Stockton University in New Jersey. So stay tuned. We're going to be back with why we need an executive order to have free speech on college campuses. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. 
stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Dr. Michael Bustler. He's a uh, policy, public policy analyst and economics expert a professor of finance and so on. And we were just talking during the break. He's been at a number of colleges, taught at a number of colleges. So we're going to sort of track, track the changes over the years, over his 30 years of being a professor. Um, but before we do that, um, it would be a good idea because I think everyone is pretty much, or most people are pretty much um, in the dark when it comes to totally understanding socialism. We were talking about Bernie Sanders before, and there are, not, there are a few other candidates, Democratic candidates, who are pushing socialism. I mean, it's like I wake up and I think, what country am I in? I mean, the whole point, well, not the whole point, but one point of democracy in the United States and capitalism was that we, we weren't a communist country and we weren't a socialist country. I mean, when I was growing up, we were taught that communism and socialism is bad. So it's like crazy that people are trying to um, w- become president and push a socialist agenda. So, uh, Dr. Bustler, tell it, you know, when I think about socialism, one of the things that comes to mind is this movie that you may have seen. I can't remember the name of it, and I have to track it down because it's such a, the visual is so, um, oh, it makes such an, an impression. There was a movie where, uh, it was an animated movie, where people were, well, it was characters, I think it was, it was either people or animals. They were on like a Ferris wheel or a, a merry-go-round kind of thing, an amusement park ride. And they were just going around and going around, and they had attached, they were in seats, and they had attached to their seats uh, trays with food and um, a beverage holder, and they were eating, you know, just gorging themselves like with hamburgers and uh, ice cream sodas and all kinds of things like that. And just going around, and they had a television in front of them on this tray. And so it's, that's what I think of when I think of socialism, that people, um, people think they're just going to be, you know, life is just, they're going to ha- not have to do anything, that they just have to, and, you know, I guess that's what <laughs> some of the, the politicians want, that you're just going to be uh, having fun all day, eating and watching television, amusing yourself. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, it's not going to be that way. <clears throat> so essentially, the difference between the uh, the really economic systems, capitalism, socialism, and communism, it's it's really fairly simple. Uh, capitalism, uh, we have private property. People have a right to own whatever they want to own, as long as you pay the right price, uh, and a limited role for government and a free market. Socialism, you still have private ownership, but now you have a much greater role for government. Government controls a lot of markets. As a result of that, they do provide services, but of course they have to be paid for, so you typically get a higher rate of taxation. And of course in communism, uh, people don't own things. The government owns everything, and the government has complete control. So the difference between socialism and capitalism is really the... Um, affect uh, or the amount of control that the federal government has. Um, 
in uh, if you take a look at the U.S. history, uh, kind of the big picture here, we went from being a, a brand new nation in the late 1700s to the number one economy in the world, the most prosperous country in about 150 years. Other countries were hundreds, in some cases thousands of years older, yet we were able to leapfrog ahead of everybody in a very short time period. The reason, in my view, that happened, there were four basic principles. One, we encouraged individual freedom, and we encouraged freedom in markets, so the government didn't get involved. Two, with individual freedom came individual responsibility. People primarily took care of themselves. You didn't rely on somebody else to take care of you. Thirdly, we had low rates of taxation. Indeed, the country was started because we had high taxes. But the low rates of taxation meant that when you earned something, most of what you earned was going to end up in your pocket. And as a result, you had plenty of incentive to earn more, and the economy grew. And fourthly, we had a very limited role for government. There are certain what we refer to as public goods, defense of the country, a legal system on local basis, police and fire protection. So there's certain public goods that the government provides, but beyond that, they stayed out of markets and let markets operate. So because we had individual freedom, individual responsibility, low taxes, and a limited role for government, the economy was able to grow from nothing to number one in about 150 years. Now, socialism is exactly opposite to all four of those principles. You're going to lose individual freedom because the government's going to pay for your health care and your education. They're going to tell you where you go and what health care you receive. So you're going to lose individual freedom. Secondly, you'll lose individual responsibility. The whole point of socialism is to have a social responsibility, not an individual responsibility. Thirdly, to be able to pay for all this, you're going to have to raise taxes not just on the wealthy, but you're going to have to raise taxes on, on everybody in order to pay for this, so we'll have high rates of taxation. And fourthly, instead of a limited role for government, the government's going to be involved in virtually everything, which means a big role for government. So socialism is exactly opposite to the principles that made this country great. As a result, if we implement it, as other countries have done, you tend to see a stagnant economy, relatively low um, economic growth, and in most, in many instances, maybe in most instances, you see a decline in the overall standard of living, primarily because there's little of an incentive for people to work harder and produce more, because the high rates of taxation, the more you produce, you know, most of it goes in somebody else's pocket and, and not your own. So this whole thing with socialism is counter to the principles that made America great. And I'm hoping when the economy really starts to pick up growth, that people will uh, tend to look away from socialism rather than thinking it's such a good idea. Yes. Um, well, you know, and as a psychiatrist, one of the thoughts that I had as far as why um, you know, the millennials and younger generations, uh, then that the, in general, the younger, the younger you are, the more likely you are to be for, um, socialism is also, uh, looking at the family that, um, a lot of families, a lot of these people, um, grew up in families where they were given everything, where they really weren't taught 
how to be independent yeah. and and go out have ambition and go out there. I mean, and the college scandal actually falls right into that. You know, where mommy yeah. and daddy are going to pay for you to um, to get into a college. You know, rather than people uh, being being encouraged to be more ambitious. They were, you know, given given awards just for participating in sports, and you don't have to win. Everybody gets an award, yep. that kind of thing. So it's kind of like yep. socialism is sort of the same thing, that everybody gets uh, handouts from the government. You know, you don't have to be uh, smarter or, you know, uh, have some talent that will get you a better job or more money. Yeah, and, you know, that kind of mindset um, where... Uh, Everything is given to you, and you get a participation trophy, whether you win or not, um, is really much different than the way the real world operates. And once uh, people leave the nest and get out to see the way the real world operates, you see that um, things shouldn't be given to you. They aren't going to be given to you, and and they they shouldn't. Um, And people will feel better if they're able to earn something themselves rather than have something given to them. You know, you take a look at um, uh, some of the social policies that we have uh, under the guise of helping people with food stamp programs and welfare programs and Section 8 housing, all these things are going to help people. And Americans are very compassionate. We don't want to see anybody in difficult conditions, so we go along with this. But um, when you take a look at all that, even the the people that, that get it, my, my kids went to an, an inner city high school, so I'm familiar with the problems in uh, inner cities. Uh, many of those people um, are on welfare and have been locked on, into that for a lifetime, some multi-generational. Um, and when I talk to them, they, they, they take what's given to them because they feel that's their only option, but they really would rather not be given anything. All they really want is the opportunity to earn things for themselves. And that's mm-hmm. what you're going to lose with socialism. With capitalism, it provides opportunity. And without any uh, restrictions put on you, I mean, obviously, you have to follow laws and things, but without any restrictions by the government, people are free to pursue their own interests and to do what they think or contribute where they think they can make the greatest contribution. Socialism is going to change all that, and that's why I think it's such a disaster for our economy. Now, it looks, it works well in, in other places. Uh, my wife happens to be Canadian. Uh, they have a very socialistic economy up there. Um, and, you know, I, uh, when I visit there, we talk, I talk to the Canadians who live there, and they say, well, look, you know, we get free health care. You don't, you don't get that, and we get uh, uh, a bunch of other things that you don't get. And I say, yeah, that's true. Um, I talked to my father-in-law, and we added up his taxes, and he's not a, a high income. He's a middle-income middle, middle income earner. He was paying 62% of his income in taxes. So, yeah, wow. you think you're getting these things free, but these things here are free are going to be very costly for you for your entire life. The government gives you free education. I, that, that sounds good. You're getting free education. However... For the rest of your working life, you're going to have to take money out of what you've earned and give it to other people so they can get free education. So this free education mm-hmm. you get, you'll be paying for for your entire life. Everybody would feel much better <laughs> if they could earn things on their own rather than taking a, a handout for the government. And socialism is more handouts from the government and less individual responsibility, and that's against the principles that made America great. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, 
Well, let's get back to the free speech. And I'm interested kind of in your experiences over the years, um, how how free speech has uh, deteriorated or disappeared. Uh, I mean, one thing, as you were talking about the economics, um, I I was thinking, doesn't anybody teach Ayn Rand anymore? (laughs) Uh, Not so much. Um, you know, years ago, there were many of us that, that, uh, read much of what she did, but, uh, it's different. It's different today. I think this whole thing really started, um, when President Obama was elected. Um, and in 2009, as we were trying to come out of a recession, um, he should have made economic growth his top priority. Instead, his top priority was to cure perceived social injustices. It's an injustice everybody doesn't have health care. It's injustice CEOs make more than everybody else. It's injustice that banks take advantage of consumers when making loans. It's injustice there's not enough food stamps to go around. So he made his top priority curing those social perceived social injustices, which is all of those uh, actions he took, um, may have done something to cure the, so, the social injustices, but they put a burden on the economy and slowed economic growth. But once he put an emphasis on social justice, income inequality that nobody ever talked about until uh, uh, President Obama came in, all those social problems and income inequality uh, and the, the, the climate and what a horrible thing that's doing to everybody, those social issues became the most important. And this generation that had eight years of President Obama is now focused on social issues uh, rather than being focused on issues that um, benefit the individual and individual responsibility that that goes along with that. So once Obama did that, now his party seems to be moving even more in a progressive direction than than he even wanted. Mm. And that's why I think we're getting all this socialism today. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, so, okay. So take us through your um, life as a professor, you know, how it was um, uh, where you went to school, first of all. Um, that was yeah. Drexel, right? In Philadelphia. Yep. Yep. In Philadelphia, yep. And, and, now, I went to school. And, yeah. uh, no, go ahead. I was going to say, I went to school in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, and w- when I went to school, just as many college students are today, I took a very progressive view, view of things. You know, it's not fair that the government send in all my friends to Vietnam. Uh, it's not fair that uh, there's not enough uh, government programs to take care of people. So I, I favored a lot of these socialistic uh, views. Mm-hmm. Then I got out into the working world, and I thought I was doing okay, and then I saw how much taxes were being taken out of my uh, income. I said, you know, all of these things that I wanted the government to do is coming out of my pocket. So Mm. nobody gave me anything. (laughs) I had to go out and earn it myself. So I kind of resented the fact that uh, uh, they were taking money out of my paycheck to cover somebody else so they didn't have to do anything. Uh, and that's when my views changed a little bit, and uh, I started to realize that we'd all be better off if we learn, all learn to take care of ourselves. Now, granted, there are some people who have some physical or other conditions where they can't take care of themselves, 
and Americans are very compassionate, and I certainly don't mind any of my tax dollars going to help people that are truly needy. But when I see people that are physically and mentally able to take care of themselves and just aren't doing it, and rather living off of the government, um, it kind of makes my blood boil a little bit. Because I know when Mm -hmm. you take things from the government, the government doesn't have any money. The government only has what they take from taxpayers. So taxpayers is, you know, that's me. So, um, you you know, the the whole thing with uh, uh, going along with the socialistic idea, you know, once you get out and start earning money and start taking care of yourself, you feel better about it, and you realize everybody would be better off if they're able to be able to have the opportunity to take care of them, them themselves. Yes, because there's pride in that. Um, you yeah. know, it's not just about, I mean, it's different when you're able to uh, go out and earn things for yourself and feel like, it, and do things, you know, feel like you've accomplished something and maybe helped other people right. in whatever work you do and so on. Um, and you don't get that just by sitting there and getting a uh, check in the mail. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You'll, you'll feel more secure or you may feel security by uh, getting that check in the mail. Um, but I think it was Ben Franklin that said, uh, if you trade liberty for security, you end up with neither. Uh, so, mm-hmm. uh, and that's pretty much the same thing. If you want the government to take care of you, uh, you're going to lose your liberty, you lose your freedom. And the, the, the big difference with the U.S. and every other country in the world is how much we embrace freedom and how important freedom is to us, and we've seen the benefits of, of freedom. Ronald Reagan said mm-hmm. we have to cherish this what, freedom. What? It could be only one generation away from losing it. Uh-huh. Wow. And he, that was, uh, that was um, he was so right. Well, we need to take yeah, another break. Yeah. My guest is Dr. Michael Bussler. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk more about um, free speech on college campuses, and, you know, we've been talking about the economy, which is kind of uh, interlaced with that. And so stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. 
Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Dr. Michael Bussler. He is a full professor, tenured professor, we were just talking about during the break, a public policy analyst and economics expert, and a professor of finance. So we were able to hear all about uh, the difference between capitalism and socialism and communism. And that's, that should, uh, now, you, now you'll be able to tell people when you're having political discussions and anybody uh, around the table is talking about how great socialism is, you'll be able to answer them with uh, why it isn't. So we're going to get back to um, your experiences at these different college campuses throughout your career and how you saw the disappearance of free speech. Yeah, so um, I think that the tide really started changing, as I mentioned in the prior segment, when uh, President Obama came into office and set the tone that social issues should be the number one priority. I noticed right after that, things started to, to change. Now, the first experience I had um, was in 2010, when the university um, said, look, uh, uh, the government has proposed the Affordable Care Act, um, and uh, to inform the, the students, um, we're going to have a professor that will speak for it, and a, the Affordable Care Act, and a prof- professor that thinks it's not such a good idea. Well, the professor that spoke for it, a a dear friend of mine, has much different views than I do, but we still maintain a very good friendship. Uh, He spoke for it and gave uh, a lot of reasons why he thought it was a good idea, um, primarily because he said um, it will control costs and it will mean um, 20 million people or more uh, who currently don't have health insurance will now have health insurance. Um, and he was very well received by the audience. Uh, it was a large auditorium. So I had to give the view on why I thought uh, the National, that the Affordable Care Act was such a, a bad idea. Um, and I was not very well received by the, uh, the students. And in fact, I felt I was uh, lucky to kind of get out of there uh, alive. And what I said was, uh, look, um, some of these things just aren't going to work out. I mean, if you think prescription drugs and medical care is expensive now, wait till you add prescription drugs, medical care, and a government bureaucracy. It's got to go up in in cost, uh, which of course it did. Uh, secondly, uh-huh. I said, look, you 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 want to you want to change the law because you want 20 million more people covered with health insurance, and that's a noble gesture. I'd like to see everybody uh, taken care of too, but. What the Affordable Care Act will do and what it did uh, is it's only going to help about 6% of the population. So 
prior to the Affordable Care Act, 85% of Americans had health insurance that they were generally pleased with. They didn't like how much it cost, but they were generally pleased with the care. After the Affordable Care Act, when Obama left office, 91% of the population had health care. So the Affordable Care Act helped 6% of the population, roughly 20 million people, that's true, but nearly 300 million people who were happy with their health insurance suddenly ran into problems. They couldn't go to the doctor they were used to. They couldn't go to some medical facilities that may have been uh, very close uh, to them. Their costs were going up significantly. They felt they ended up with pure, uh, poor quality care and having it cost more, more money. So I said uh-huh. back then that, look, if we have a problem because roughly 15% of the population is not covered, roughly 50 million people are not covered with health insurance, let's address that. But don't foul up the whole system for the other 85% mm-hmm. of us because you're worried about a few percent of the population. Remember, ours is supposed to be a system for the majority without infringing upon anybody's basic rights. We understand that, but a system for the majority. So if we have a healthcare problem, get it fixed for the majority, and then you're in a position to help uh, some of the people who don't have health insurance. I also said this is not the time to be doing this. The economy is coming out of a very severe recession. Unemployment is still high. Incomes are still low. And you want to put on this big tax burden um, of the Affordable Care Act, which incidentally had 21 new or increased taxes uh, in it, all on the middle class. I said, what we should do is let's get the economy growing again, get it nice and strong where everybody's working and incomes are up. Then we're in a much stronger position to deal with some of these issues like uh, health care. So the timing is terrible. And the fact that... Um, it's going to uh, essentially try to nationalize the healthcare system is also not a good idea. In fact, uh, part of the reason why the costs are so high, I would argue, is there's a lack of a free market in healthcare. Um, mm-hmm. Indeed, there's restrictions into getting into that market and a few other things. If we made the market more competitive, that would bring the cost down, improve the quality of the care, and be able to cover yes. more people. But the point is, I was very negatively received. And that's the first time I noticed that uh, free speech seems to be uh, losing some, some traction. Up until then, I always felt that I know my views were different than most of the professors, but we can always talk about them. Uh, and students were willing to listen to both sides. After that, um, episode in 2010, I started to think, what's happening to free speech here? I don't feel comfortable uh-huh. talking about what my views are anymore. And then it went just went hmm. on from there. Hmm. And what about now? You were telling us a little bit about, um, you know, how most of the professors and the students don't agree. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's even worse in a sense. But so how are you coping with that? And, and what is it like uh, in general? Like, what is this deal with safe spaces? And, and you know, what, how are you feeling this impact of limited free speech uh, at your college? Yeah, I'll tell you, here and at other schools, I'm sure the, the same way, uh, people that have different views from the socialistic now, I think, or at least they believe mainstream views, 
are very reluctant to give those views. Um, look, uh, historically, if faculty members, my colleagues were discussing something and there was a little bit of a debate, I felt very comfortable entering the debate, giving my views, and we always had good intellectual conversations. Today, I wouldn't, I just walk right by these people because if I enter into the argument, they'll all start ganging up on me. Uh, and I know, for instance, um, th- there are certain perks that professors get that have to get approved by different uh, people in the uh, faculty. Um, I don't apply for any of those things um, because I know <laughs> they, uh, people don't respect my views and they're certainly not going to give me any, any uh, perks. So things, wow. things have changed. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm at the later stages of my career, so I don't get too upset about it. And fortunately, I'm able to do some uh, writing and get some of my opinions out, so I don't ever feel like I'm being stifled. But some of the younger mm-hmm. faculty, if you come up with conservative views, you have to be very c- careful, especially if you're on a tenure track and you're worried about tenure. Um, you're not going to say anything that's going to upset any of the faculty members, so you, you kind of have to hold your your thoughts to yourself. And in, at universities, we're supposed to encourage free thought. Uh, you know, a lot of ideas that that uh, are put forth in society came out of somebody with some crazy idea in, in college. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh-huh. we need to encourage those crazy ideas and encourage free free speech, not discourage it. Yes, um, absolutely. Um, you said something that I I was gonna that maybe. Um, I forgot. I forgot now what you said. That made me uh, think about <laughs> going on to the next. Time. Oh, I know. Um, I know. We don't have that much time left. But um, what do you think? I mean, how successful do you think this executive order is going to be in terms of like who is going to report that the colleges aren't allowing free speech? In other words, in order to not uh, to make it successful with his withholding of federal funds, somebody would have to report it that such and such yeah. happened on their college campus and, and then it would be investigated and so on. How, do you, how well do you think that's going to work? Well, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure what the mechanism is that they uh, have to report it. I do know that uh, if any kind of riots or if somebody gets punched kind of thing, uh, that will make the news and everybody will, will see that. Uh, but other than that, I'm not sure how it's going to get uh, um, enforced. Um, I think President Trump had a great idea by saying, look, we have to encourage free speech. And the only way I think I can do that uh, is by controlling the purse strings. Uh, but you're right. Someone's going to have to report that. And there has to be some kind of a mechanism to uh, evaluate these things to determine whether um, there is a problem that exists. I think we mentioned before there, there's likely to be a, a court challenge to this. Um, and we'll see how far, far that goes. That may go up to the Supreme Court, uh, too. I'm, you know, I'm just not sure. Um, but, uh, you know, there's got to be some way where we can bring back the, the spirit that's supposed to be on colleges that uh, students are free to let their mind wander. Even if they come up with ideas that are much different than everybody else, um, they're encouraged to do that and to bring those ideas forward and talk to other people about it. And the other people shouldn't be so set in their views because at their age, they just don't know everything. In fact, they don't even know right. what they don't know. 
So right, um, right. it would benefit them to really to listen to what the other view has to say. And if they're so sure that they're right, uh, which is okay, uh, if they're sure that they're right, they should be able to come up with a logical argument as to why the other side is not right. But if you don't listen to the other side, you'll never be able to to do that. So I hope he, Trump can enforce this somehow, and I hope it reverses this trend of uh, uh, discouraging free speech on college campuses. You know, I think it'll probably have to be something like a whistleblower where um, yeah. where you get protected if you report that some incident happened. Because otherwise, like what you were saying with the professors, you know, they would be afraid to uh, report something because they wouldn't want to, you know, um, lower their chances for getting tenure and all that, kind of not getting the perks like you were talking about for yourself. And um, there has to be sort of a, an anonymous or some kind of uh, private way of reporting these things. Yeah, and that may be a, a difficult thing to do. I don't know what's written into the, the law, but you're, you're right. Somebody might be afraid to say something because of some of the repercussions that uh, they could get afterwards. I hope somehow that's built into that, and it will uh, encourage people that um, have uh, not been able to speak freely. It will encourage them to report that, and the government will put pressure on the schools then to allow everybody to speak their mind, whether they agree with your opinion or not. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. Our time is up. You've been really uh, very interesting about all... Thank you. <laughs> not only about the uh, college uh, free speech on college campuses, but also about our economy. So it was all very interesting. Uh, so I'd like to thank, thank you. you, Dr. Michael Bussler. And um, thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. And I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 